Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is September the 20th, 2018, and this is episode 2,296 of the Survival Podcast. So this is Thursday, it's Listener Call Show. And uh, we're going to have a pretty brief intro segment, uh, but I do want to... Uh, to let you know about something uh, that came in from Stephen Harris uh, in regard to the relief work being done by CAC Teams, uh, which is the nonprofit that I helped to found many years ago. Uh, here's what he says, just a quick note from Stephen Harris. Uh, in Lumberton, there are four shelters with near 500 people each, short of everything. One road just opened up, and FEMA is there and providing absolutely nothing. We have three tons of water bottles and hundreds of sheets, blankets, bath towels, plus food items, especially baby formula, diapers, wipes, all the way, all on the way tomorrow a.m. into the area. This intel uh, came right from the ground. We called a barbecue joint near the shelter. They got us in touch with the right people. Patriot Gal did this. Uh, and I won't say her real name because I don't know if she wants it on the air. Uh, this is a convoy of three vehicles going, one of which is a two-ton dually pickup with a 16-foot trailer. People are sleeping on the floor in the halls of the school with no cots, no blankets, no sheets, no anything. F FEMA. They're about to get bypassed, Steve. Uh, and he says, P.S., all of the sheets and stuff were donated cast-offs from major and small hotels in the Raleigh-Durham, North Carolina area. Okay, this is... I just kind of wanted to point this out. This is what I wanted in this organization. CAC came out of a vision that I had for an organization that would operate far differently. And I knew we could never do as much as the Red Cross, but I knew we could do what we had FEMA, but better. We, what we could do, we could do better. This all started with Hurricane Sandy. And I watched so many people hurting while the Red Cross begged for money and nobody got help. And it was like, these people are there. They need stuff. Just take stuff to them. And people were going to FEMA and going, here, we have stuff. And FEMA said, we don't want stuff. Go make a donation. And I was like, okay, this, we, we need something different. There's always people willing to help. And there's always people that can go help. And if we can put those two things together, then we can make something happen. So here you have people on the ground. You can't, you know, like, well, what do you do? Well, we reach out and we talk to people. We find out, hey, here's the situation. Here's a place where people need help. Okay, what do they need? They need this stuff. Okay, we'll go get it. We're going to get it. We'll go to the, you know, if it's stuff we can buy, we'll go to the Costco outside of the disaster area where they still have them. We'll buy it with, with donated funds. Or we'll talk to people in the area that have resources, clothing, etc. We'll get it. We'll take it to them. I mean, this doesn't take a freaking rocket scientist to figure out, but government agencies can't work this way. FEMA can't do It's not even their fault. They can't do that. They, people would lose their jobs if they started doing stuff like we're doing. So we have to do it. And I want to remind you, there's still ways to help, whether it's through donation, whether it's through becoming a responder, whether it's through helping with logistics from behind a keyboard and a phone across the country. CAC teams still need your help. You go to CACteams.com, and you can sign up to be a volunteer there, and someone will get in touch with you and let you know how you can help. You can also uh, make a donation. And uh, we are putting the money that is donated to CAC teams into stuff that goes into the hands of people who need it when they are in their worst part of, you know, one of the worst moments of their life. 
the way that this stuff is supposed to work. You know, when they're in the the other one that pushed me over is the Haitian earthquake and the Red Cross taking in half a billion dollars, five hundred million dollars in their campaign, and having people that have small nonprofits on the ground in Haiti telling me they never even saw the Red Cross. The one guy had been down there three times. His name's Brandon. He has his own small nonprofit. He told me that in three trips to Haiti, he saw one water tank with the Red Cross symbol on it. It was in the middle of an empty field, and it was empty. There's nothing in it. It was just sitting there. So I believe when there's a problem, instead of bitching about it, you do something about it. CAC Teams is making it happen, and they're doing it exactly the way that I envisioned. A small, light, agile-type team to get stuff done. And we're smart enough to know we're not that big, and they're linking up and working with other people, whoever's there coordinating and getting things done. So, congrats to them, and again, if you guys want to help out, cacteams.com. Next up, real quick, before we get into your calls for me today, I want to remind you again that tickets for the fall workshop, TSP uh, 2018 fall workshop, are going to go on sale next Saturday. Not this Saturday, next Saturday, the 29th, at 8 a.m. Central. If you're an MSB member... You're the ones that can buy the tickets initially. No one else can. It's going to be a $150 deposit. You put the deposit down. You pay the balance when you come to the workshop. That just holds your seat. I've had, people have asked me you know, about refunds. This is my policy with refunds. My, my things always sell out. They always sell out. So when I, when I take a, a, a deposit and the person doesn't come... I end up not losing just the deposit I give back. I end up losing the full price of the seat that I would have gotten had I sold it to someone who did show up. So in general, I don't have like a guaranteed refund policy. However, I'm a reasonable man. What I do is this. If you cancel and I can sell your seat... You know, I can say, hey, we, you know, we're a week out, but somebody just canceled. I have, and somebody buys it even short term. I give you your deposit back. If I can't get somebody to buy your seat, then I generally actually still do refund the deposit. It depends. If it's I just decided I'm bored or busy or whatever, I, I, I might not. I don't know. I really the people that I've had contact me at those last minutes have been things like I had a death in a family, like, and they're like, just keep it. Don't worry about it. I'm like, no, no, no. That's I'm not going to be that guy. So in general, I probably will anyway. But uh, just understand that, you know, I guess my point is don't willy-nilly do it where you're not really sure, but I'll just grab a, a seat in case. Like, you know, make your plans to be here. Um, I've put out plenty of information on the dates and all, but it is the 7th through the 11th of November is the actual workshop. And the one big question people generally have is what airport should I fly into? Dallas-Fort Worth International Airport is the best airport. Uh, Dallas Love Field is okay. It's a bit of a longer drive. Uh, it's not as convenient, etc. As far as how to get here, there's a huge information packet that's been used for years now for students. Once you sign up, you'll get a copy of that information packet. It has a waiver and everything that you need to know and, and, and what have you, and the stuff on the schedule that we don't tell the public and all kinds of great stuff. So we'll have all of that available after people sign up. Again, I just want to remind you because I don't want people upset. I think it's going to sell out. Very, very quickly this year. Our record was just under two hours. I think we might break it this year because of what we're doing. It is going to be off the hook fantastic. Um, so my other reminder for you then is if you're an MSB member and you're planning on coming, 
you probably want to log into your account like the day before and make sure everything's kosher and working. And if you have any doubts about your renewal date and having it expire on you, you can get in touch with me. I'll check and make sure for you. Um, and not because I, you know, I would help you if you email me that day, but you could miss out. So um, I'm gonna pro I'm hoping that it doesn't sell out in record time. I know it sounds counter to what you would think, but I'm I'm letting more people come than I ever have. So I'm hoping that actually, you know, anybody that wants to can. Uh, you know, anybody that wants to, that's, that's willing to, I guess, can. That's my hope. Again, tickets go on sale Saturday, September 29th, 8 a.m. Set your reminders because if you don't, I don't think you're going to get to come. All right, with that, let's get in and uh, take your first call for me today. Remember to call in the show. The number is 866-65-THINK. Uh, speak loudly and clearly. Make sure you have some bars on your phone. Make your point or ask your question immediately. Then go on and give me the details. Or you can use the speak pipe. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on uh, contact, and you'll see a button for the speak pipe. You can mash that. And as long as you have a microphone on your device, you can leave me a message. With that, go ahead and take our first call today. Hi, Jack. This is Joe from Lindenhurst, New York. My question is, what food do you store in your 72-hour kit or bug out bag? little background, I have my wife, myself, and three kids, age 13, 13, and 15. The kids are kind of picky eaters, so I'm really not sure what kind of food to store. Traditionally, I have been storing cereal bars, Pop-Tarts, and some soup. But the stuff usually really doesn't last too long, except for the soup. And then nobody really wants to eat it. So I usually toss the food out in the garbage. Are MRAs a better option since they last longer and are lighter? What kind of food do you suggest that I should store in my go bag for my family of five? Thanks. Um, th this question almost didn't make it, not because it's not a good question, because I because I basically answered the core question like two weeks ago, I think. I had this exact question without the kids' component to it from somebody that wrote in. Um, so I've kind of talked about talk about it a little bit more, but I, there's a reason I took it, and it has to do more with what it sounds like going on here with bug out bag versus bug out bags with an S, right? Okay, so I I am a big believer on the majority of the stuff in your bag to be things that you personally like that you don't mind eating that you would eat anyway, um, and then they also have to store well. So I'm a little more, and I do believe in like morale items, candies, and stuff like that because that does you know help boost things in a bad situation. And you know I don't think you should be living on Mars bars, Mars bars and Snickers bars, not good for you to be living on. But having a couple of them in a situation where you might go a long time without eating, they do have a, a, a massive amount of calorie, right? So they can give you fuel in those stressful situations. Since I don't spend a lot of time in my vehicle anymore, uh, and I don't have to worry about always bringing a bag in and you know coming out and finding a dookie from it, I have a little bit more stuff like that. We'd call it pogey bait back in the military. Um, but the core stuff for me is nuts and beef jerky, and I do have some Mountain House-style stuff, and I do have some MRE stuff. My big thing with MREs is the problem with them, if you said I'm going to have an MRE a day for a 72-hour kit, three MREs damn near fill up any bag that most people use for a bug-out bag that, is, that aren't insane. But if you do what's called field stripping them and strip them down, you can make them a lot more space-conscious. 
And I put a video up for you today in the show notes of Brian Black, my buddy over at ITS Tactical, showing how to field trip an MRE and showing how much the size reduction is. And it's a, it's a good thing, or I would have put it there, right? But I'd say in your personal bug out bag, you can even do better because, like, you'll see them throw away the strawberry shake. Well, hell, you'd want that for your kids. So by not feeling the need to put it all back together and more breaking it up in pieces, parts, and different parts of the bag, you can carry a lot more MRE stuff. The thing about MREs is they're relatively expensive for what they are, and you can generally only get them online, and you generally have to buy quite a bit of them to get any kind of a decent price. And until you eat one, you aren't going to know if you like it or you don't. Um, my understanding is that there's some stuff that's pretty good out there now, some that's actually military and some that's like military, pseudo-military-like. Um, I can tell you that I'm not a huge fan of MREs because I lived on them for six months of my life. And we came up with names for some of the stuff that I understand doesn't exist anymore. There used to be a thing called tunas and noodles. I think tuna, tuna and noodles was number six, if I remember right. There were only 12 back then, and we called it Nine Lives. We also had corned beef hash, some people called it corned beef trash, and some people called it Alpo Light. If you've ever seen Alpo Light canned dog food, it looked disturbingly the same. Um, beef stew, we called beef spew. So you can see that we didn't have like a an in-love relationship with this stuff, but it's a lot of calories in a small area, and it lasts a long time. So those can work out, too. But there's a lot of things that are available in your grocery store that are an awful lot like modern MREs. You go down the aisle where the tuna and stuff like that is, you'll find foil pouches of things like tuna and chicken and things like that, and with a sm you know little small packets of mayo and things like that. There are condiments that you get at like a, uh, a restaurant or something like that. Uh, you can whip up something pretty quick. That's kind of a, a you know a tuna or chicken salad, uh, and you can get as creative as you want with that. If you have some walnuts and dried cranberries and some chicken in a pouch, well. You could make something that's pretty close to uh, a, a salad that you might pay, you know, five, six, eight bucks for at a, at a small restaurant. So you can get as creative as you want with it. But here's the real thing I wanted to kind of get across to you. If you have two kids and they're 13, 13, and 15, sounds like twins you got there, unless you did some adoption or something like that. Um, and God bless you if you have. Uh, those are old enough human beings to be responsible and have their own bug out bag and make decisions about it, and so is your wife. And maybe they're not on board. Tell them they don't got a choice on this one, That you know, especially the kids. The wife, you better be a little more tactical the way you go at it. But we need to have this and explain why. It's not because I listen to a crazy doomsday survivalist that says the apocalypse is coming and we're going to have to go fight Red Dawn. We need this because what would we do, for instance, if one member of this family got seriously injured or ill and we all had to run to the hospital and we didn't have time to come home? Wouldn't it be great if we all had enough stuff to support us during that? What if the sheriff's department knocks on the door one day and says we have to evacuate and we have one minute to get our stuff and get out because there's a fire or whatever it is? Like These are things that happen. So we're going to have this. And you're going to have your bag. So you're picky. That's fine. You better figure out what we can keep in your bag that you're not going to be too picky to eat because if we end up in one of those situations and you're whining to me or whatever, I'm going to tell you eat what's in your bag. I think you're good for three days. And watch it become important. 
and make a deal with them. Hey, look, you know some of the stuff you guys like to eat that's kind of like junk food in the house? It does store pretty well. Let's do this. You pick the stuff that, you know, within what you allow them to eat, by the way, you know, don't don't let them eat Pop-Tarts every day or anything, but, you know, within the stuff that you allow them to eat that, you know, when you get a snack every third week or whatever, you take it out of your bug-out bag and we replace it with a new one to keep a rotation going on. Get them comfortable using them. Say, hey, you know, all those electronic devices and all, you might want to make sure you have some extra batteries and a charger and stuff like that and some clothes that you really aren't that attached to anymore, but, you know, at least, you know, that, that are there. And, 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 you know, that way, if you know, hey, if you just need to go hang out at a friend's house for a night because something went on that we have to take care of, it's not that big a deal, grab your bag and go. And you're always ready to go. And make it their responsibility because the, the answer to the question of what food should I pack in my bag for my family of five is you shouldn't. You, 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 you carry stuff for two-year-olds. You don't carry stuff for 13-year-olds like this. It's not possible to have a 72-hour kit that one person is responsible for for five people who are two adults and three young adults. So make sure they get involved and get them involved in making decisions. Take them to the grocery store. Walk them down the aisles. What do you like? How can, and then instead of saying, well, this won't work because it's only going to last two months, do you eat this? Do you eat this in the home right now? Okay, well, then let's make a schedule, and you simply eat the one in your bag and replace it from the pantry every two weeks or whatever it is and be responsible for it. Incentivize it. Do a shakedown once in a while. Hey, everybody go get your bag. Let's go through it and see who did the best this month. Don't punish the loser. Reward the winner. Positive reinforcement. Get things going like that. Make this something that's important to them. And once it's important to them, they'll help you make those decisions. Uh, let's take another one. This one's on uh, cellular data plans. We seem to have a we've seemed to hit a uh, kind of a, a, a sore nerve for some people with that one because uh, a lot's coming in on it. Hey Jack, it's Eli again with a quick heads up. Uh, you've had a few people call our email about switching to cellular data over often more expensive traditional broadband internet connections to save money. I'd really recommend anyone doing this to take a look at the fine print of the cellular plans before committing to this, as if you use too much data, all the carriers have the ability to just turn off your connection, even though they're selling it as quote-unquote unlimited. It all comes down to how much data you use. If you come home after work and watch a few YouTube videos and do other normal things for someone on a cellular connection to be doing, you'll be fine. Where you run into problems is if you're outside the typical usage thresholds of an average cellular customer. This can result in your connection being severely throttled to being borderline useless or straight up terminated. These things are all vaguely defined in something called the acceptable use policy, which you can find by Googling your cellular carrier and acceptable use policy. For instance, Verizon acceptable use policy. Uh, they specifically say in this that generating excessive amounts of email or other internet traffic will result in termination of your service. Now, it's very, very likely that only extreme power users will be hit by this, but it still deserves to be said that switching to a cellular connection isn't the slam dunk it might seem like it is if you do anything that consumes a lot of data, which could be innocuous things like streaming a lot of Netflix videos or other data-hungry activities that have become pretty normal these days. Anyway, that's just a uh, potentially significant caveat that I hadn't heard discussed before when this was brought up in the past. Um, have a good one, and uh, congrats on the 10 years. So just kind of to be clear, especially for new folks, I've been following this here over the past few weeks. Um, what I actually started this was 
uh, a discussion about 5G technology and cellular that's not it's not available yet. It's slowly just now the inklings of it are beginning to become clear and be rolled out. And there'll be acceptable use policies there too, but a lot of the stuff that any normal user would do, even if they're a power user, uh, 5G is going to make it irrelevant. And for instance, you, you know you mentioned Verizon. Verizon is specifically rolling out their 5G technology for home users for Internet. AT&T's plan with 5G is to really focus initially on 5G to the handset, um, which will enable them to do it to the home. Right? But they're sticking with the, the one that they brought to the dance, so to say. Verizon's saying, hey, we're going to go in these major markets, uh, and we're going to compete with cable, really, is what they're doing. Uh, we're going to be able to go in there and you know provide a connection that somebody would have paid a hundred thousand dollars for twenty years ago. And no, I'm not exaggerating. Uh, via wireless uh, for thirty bucks a month. Acceptable use? Yeah, they will ding people sometimes to just use a lot of data. When you hear things like generating a lot of email. What they're talking about are people using their service as, a, as basically conduit for spamming others. Or, for instance, another thing that might get you shut down might be crypto mining across it. Because it's a continuous nonstop. Even though it doesn't use much, it's continuous and it never stops, that type of thing. So I think there's, you know, the technology that people are using for this today works, but it was never intended to be an Internet connection for a home with four people using it all the time. It wasn't designed to do that. The the technology they're moving to is actually designed to do that and to do it better than cable and DSL. So I think that's where you'll see more of the opportunity there. But I know a lot of people using 4G data plans for all of their Internet, and I have yet to hear from somebody shut down. I'm sure I will today. If not today, tomorrow. And once this goes out, I'm going to hear from some very angry person how AT&T or Verizon or whoever just sucks and they're evil and they burn puppies and they throw them in wood chippers and they do, you know, uh, they, they chant to Satan because you got shut down. I'm not saying it can't happen. I'm saying that in by and large, it's not likely uh, with normal use. Anyway, with that, let's take another one. Uh, this one's a good, really good business question. Hey, Jack. Daniel here from Southeast Texas. My question has to do with naming a blog or a business and how you balance the unique, uh, mentally catching name versus the very specific as to what you do. And details, I'm trying to think through some names for a couple different things, specifically our small farm. And um, I was curious how you just balance those two things. My ridiculous example would be Something fun and unique and probably very memorable, such as Gilded Dragon Acres versus something very specific and obvious, hey, this is what we do, like pastured pig farms. So any thoughts you have on that and how to balance those two things, I would really appreciate it. Thank you. So the real answer is it depends. First, one of the things that I think the name of any entity should do is it should match the culture of the entity. If you're going to use some kind of quirky Green Acres type thing, if that's who you are and that's who the people in your business are and it matches your culture, then, then it'll work. Um, if you're very much a 
nuts and bolts, this is what we are, you know, kind of a German-like run company, then it might be better to be more of a descriptive terminology, as I talk about when I say ready-made resources, right? Say what you do and do what you say. All of this works. I think that, in the end, your marketing needs to be say what you do and do what you say. But your name is only a piece of your marketing, and it doesn't always have to be the thing that does that. Um, and there is a good case to be made for you know a marketing hook, the survival podcast. If you hear that, it can it can cut both ways. I'm sure I get people that never listen because they think it's all doomsday bunkers or whatever. But in the end, there's a lot of people out there searching for survival podcast. So I got out in front of that train, did a really good job of marketing the name. And that, to this day, I get people that are new to the site every day simply because they went to Google or Yahoo or Bing, whatever the hell Microsoft is that anybody like 10% of people in the world use. Uh, and and they, they type in Survival Podcasts and they find us listed. And where they go to iTunes or Stitcher and they, I'm looking for Survival Podcasts. Oh, this one's called that. I'll, I'll go listen to it. And, you know, then they do or do not like it. Now... But you don't always necessarily do that. Like, is there a happy circumstance that creates a name that sounds memorable and maybe sounds bigger than it is? How about Nine Mile Farm? Nine Mile Farm sounds like a farm. We called it Nine Mile Farm because we live on a road that's called Nine Mile Road. Nine Mile Farm on Nine Mile Road. But we marketed the name, and then we, we also marketed the fact that we sold duck eggs and quail eggs. And Nine Mile Farm in our little local market became synonymous with duck eggs. We ain't sold a duck egg in over six months. We st And we have on the website, we don't sell duck eggs. And we still get like a call or two a week from people like, I heard about you guys. And you guys have, no, we don't have ducks anymore. You have to explain it to them and try to find them somebody to buy from. That's the power of marketing. And if you think about it, like it sounds like a legitimate operation. We didn't come up with it. It came up with itself. We're a farm, we're on Nine Mile Road. It just makes sense. I know that it works for other people because apparently there's one in Michigan up near the Canadian border that we occasionally get some angry delivery driver calling us and cussing us out over because they can't find it. That's um, <laughs> kind of fun, I guess. And I get called. There must be one somewhere in, like, southern Florida because I get calls for oranges and bananas, too, and we don't have that here. Uh, but, you know, so obviously that name is something other people have used because it sounds right. And there's probably other Nine Mile Roads. And then what we did to make that work is we had, you know, Nine Mile dot Farm as our domain name instead of NineMileFarm.com. So we actually used a domain extension that worked with the, the name itself, which really kind of caught people's eye. I mean, this is a legitimate operation. And then we spent a little bit of money with a service called Call8, K-A-L-L, the number 8.com, Call8. You can get 800 numbers there. And you can set up an 800 number, and in literally five minutes, you could have that 800 number ringing to your phone or your cell phone or anywhere you want. It's actually a really powerful service. You could have it, say, from 8 to 5 ring to your cell phone, from 5 to 7 ring to your wife's cell phone because she takes the after-hour calls or whatever, and then from 7 to 8 in the morning, 7 to 9 to 8 in the morning to go through a voicemail and send you your voicemails as an attachment in an email. You could have it do that on Saturday and Sunday. You could have it block people because you don't want to take calls from outside the, an area code or something. It's, it's really badass and it's cheap. Well, they also have vanity numbers. So we got a number that the last four numbers were F-A-R-M. And I'll tell you a little trick. 
I uh, went and figured out what those numbers were and did a search to see if any of those numbers were available and didn't go through the vanity thing where they suggest it to you. Well, because of that, I paid regular price. It's like it was five bucks a month for a, for a number. And so when you put that all together, now Nine Mile Farm means something. And the marketing makes it associated with duck eggs. So it's, it's up to you how you do that. But I think the key in naming any entity, business, blog, etc., is making it match the culture. Does it match your personality and who you are and what you're trying to do? And then the other thing is, don't overthink it. Don't overthink it. You can change the name by changing the sign. You know, if, if, it's, if, it's, if it's so valuable in brand that you don't want to change it, then you did good and you don't need to change it. And if you don't think it's really working for you, then it doesn't have value in brand, so there's no problem with changing it. And, and don't ever think that you're married to the name on your, if you do like an LLC, your name on that company. Your, your company can be Joe Blow Nose Pickers LLC, and you could DBA anything you want as far as what you do business as, as a marketing name. All right, so hopefully that helps you. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. Dan in Nebraska. I just had a comment on what's come up recently about uh, installing cabling in a house or in a structure. A listener a little while back had a question about that, and it came up again uh, recently in a call-in show, I think it was. Uh, just wanted to leave a comment about that, that uh, CCA cable may actually be a cost-effective way to run cabling while it's still necessary. Uh, while not spending too much on um, basically on the the copper um, full copper and oh man I'm rambling <laughs> sorry uh, basically the the return on investment may be actually in my opinion okay uh, for using CCA I've had good success with it here at our house um, was able to install it relatively easily and uh, it'll suit its needs. So just thought I'd uh, get your thoughts on the balance between return on investment with the change in wireless technology and uh, installing a home network. So thanks. Enjoy the show. Have a good day. Well, I, I think you're, you're combining two calls. So we had a caller question not too long ago about running a data cable out to an outbuilding, and we talked about that. And we also had a separate call that was specific to CCA, which is copper-clad aluminum, which means it's aluminum, uh, aluminum wire, and using it in a power system, a backup power system. And in that episode, I said, under no circumstances whatsoever would I ever use CCA cable uh, in a situation where I'm wiring up anything with electricity on it. And I also probably wouldn't use it in audio usage as well. And if you go and put CCA failures uh, into Google, you'll find countless examples of burned-up wire and why I wouldn't do it. So don't do it. And it's not CCA anyway. It's aluminum with some copper electric coating on it to make you feel better about the fact that it's aluminum. What I didn't say, and what I will say now, is if I would ever be willing to use CCA cabling for anything, it would be data cabling, because you're not going to fry a data cable. There's not enough, of a little bit of voltage there, there's not enough to really do anything. Um, it, it just, it's not 
a danger. And if I had some CCA cable laying around and I needed to run a data drop over in another office building or over in another room or something like that, uh, indoors, I, I would go use it. I would not use it by choice for any application at all. And the reason I wouldn't is because even though it will probably be okay, and even though the worst thing that's going to happen is I'm going to end up with some excessive crosstalk and that's going to create some data packet loss or it's going to end up with a, a, a failure in a connection at some point because it's shitty and brittle like aluminum is uh, and because it easily oxidizes and anywhere that that connection is exposed even indoors to the air it's going to be subject to corrosion over time even though that's all the case um, I don't have any real need to because you don't save that much money you can buy a thousand feet of uh, cat 5e solid copper or stranded copper cable, depending on what you're doing, uh, for like 60 bucks. So if the CCA cable costs you 30, and I think it's more than that, you're going to save 30 bucks to use something that's not even close to as good. Because the there's a lot more resistance in the CCA cable because the makeup for the fact that it's aluminum, what they end up having to do is they end up having to make the wire actually thicker. I don't think there's anything wrong with what you did. I just wouldn't do it, and I don't think you save enough money to justify it. Now, when it comes to going outdoors, you need an outdoor-rated cable that's designed to be direct-buried, and you're going to pay some more money for it, and you should. And I think that if you're going to dig a trench, let's say... 50, 80 feet out to an outbuilding and you run that cable out there, you know, the thing is, buy the best cable you can afford for that job. Because you're asking it to survive under the ground, running up the side of a riser on the outside of a building, all of that stuff, and it's still not that expensive. Because your maximum distance that you can run a data link is 100 meters. Yes, you can go further. I've done it. I did it for customers back when I was in that business, and I'm like, Yeah, it's another 15 meters. It's going to be fine. It'll work. We'll put it in. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. If, if, if save you put another uh, cross-connect in, let's let's try it. We'll see if it works for you. And it does. Can't certify it, but who cares? The guy's computer works. So, yes, it, you it, that is the limit for a certified network uh, link or channel, depending on how you're doing your testing. Um, but that's a good... That's a good limit to stay within. There's a reason it's there. It's not just there to sell more cable or to sell more cable testing. Um, so let's say it's 100 meters. That's 300 feet-ish. So a 1,000-foot box, you could run two runs of the maximum length. Why, 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 why cheap out there? And I would, in that instance, run two cables. Because you're not cabling up the whole house when you're doing that. What you're doing is you're running that data link out there, and it's being patched into your router on your side in the house, and you're putting some sort of a repeater in, in the thing there, and it's basically making its own little miniature wireless network that's hardwired back into the main router. That's what you're doing there. The reason I would put in two cables is if something does happen to one of them, I don't have to dig another ditch. I just flop over to the other cable, so it's a spare. And it's cheap enough that I think it's worth doing. So if you have it... If you've already used it, I wouldn't rip it out. In making a decision, there is no scenario you can give me 
where I am going to be willing to sacrifice quality and go down and use aluminum wire or aluminum cable. And I really think that that's, again, that's how you should think of it. Don't call it CCA. Call it aluminum, because that's what it is. There is so little copper on there. The copper is of no consequence. It really isn't. It doesn't have, it's, 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 it's a marketing gimmick to sell a cheaper cable. And I'll tell you why companies make it and sell it. They do not do this because they will get business they otherwise wouldn't. If they didn't make it, nobody would say, well, screw that since I can't save 15 bucks a box or 20 bucks a box. I'm not going to data cable. People put data cabling in because they need to. Right? Um, and you know, on a big job where it would add up as a savings, it's too important to do it that way. And on a big job where the savings would add up, not only is it too important to do it that way, all the big installs that are done, so you go to an office, put in 500 drops or whatever, they all have to be certified jobs. And the CCA is not certifiable. It, it doesn't meet the industry standards for data cabling. So why do they make it? They make it because they can sell it for a little less and some people will buy it but they'll actually make more money per box. Their margin is much higher on it. That's why they make it. They make it because it's a cheap cable they can sell for. They can call it something that it ain't, copper, and they can sell it for a little less than the real copper and get more of your money per box. So if you want to use it for anything, yeah, data. Would I do it? No. Would I pull it back out once you put it in? No. Just if in the future you're doing any other projects... You know, go for it. I also wanted to talk to you guys about plenum because you might see that if you're buying a cable and might not understand that. So in most instances, it's it's irrelevant to you. Plenum cable is designed in plenum spaces, which is ceilings in office buildings and such like that, and mainly because you have very large amounts of cable. You go into any office building, whereas like Cubicle City, and you lift that up, and you look at the bundles of data cable up there. And a lot of time, there's you know a big bundle that everybody's on, and there's a, the last bundle when they did Cat 5 or 5E, and now they're on 6 or 6E. There might be multiple years, they, and they don't rip it all out a lot of times. They just leave it up there. Well, if there's a fire, and you got massive amounts of PVC up in that space, and with ventilation and the PVC off-gassing and all, it's it's a bad thing. I'll just leave it at that. So there's 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 jobs that require plenum cable. Um, unless you're putting a lot of cable in, it's you know, if your roof's on fire, you have bigger problems. So just that's that's what that is if you see that. Let's take another one. Hi Jack, this is Alex from Michigan. I'm looking for ideas of things to do with sawdust. Um, backstory, I have a small homestead. I have chickens, ducks, and a good-sized garden. Uh, I'm a cabinet maker, so my shop produces about four to five 55-gallon contractor bags worth of finely chopped, talking like under the size of a dime, bits of wood. And this wood is primarily hard maple. Um, so it, it breaks down well. I've been using it for mulch and, um, for bedding and things like that for the chickens, but I would love to have some other ideas of ways to use that usefully. Um, right now I give a lot of it away to 
my parents who have horses, uh, but I would love to find more ways to retain that around my homestead. So any ideas would be helpful. Really appreciate you and what you do. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. I'm really not sure what to advise you to do with this because the things you're doing with it are the main things that it's useful for. It sounds like it's really too small to be good for making, let's say, a biochar product out of or something like that. Um, I would point out that the amount you say you have seems like a lot, but it ain't really maybe as much as you think. You, you, you literally can't put too much of it down on the ground. Um, if you, you know, take areas and just start sheet mulching until you have inches of that stuff, um, the, the quality of the soil that you'll end up with will be amazing, especially if you'll do something like, you know, check with your feed store, local feed store, find out if they have like, you know, what do you do when, when a bag of feed's ripped or maybe gets weevils in or it gets a little bit old, do you sell it off super cheap? And be willing to take that stuff wherever you start a new project. Throw that that stuff on the ground before you put the mulch on top of it. When you pull it back a few months later, you will see worms like you ain't never seen before. And if you add to that a little hit of uh, dry molasses, I mean, the biological activity you'll conjure when you do that is pretty amazing. Um, you could be making a premium uh, compost product, too, since you have chickens. If you were, you know, basically mixing in a specific nitrogen ratio with that into bins of some kind that the chickens could process for you, you'd have a compost that, again, you could use. I, I personally, with the amount of volume you're doing, I wouldn't I wouldn't make compost for myself, though, because just throw it on the ground and let nature do it. But if you were doing a compost product like that that was baggable, maybe it's something that you can partner with someone locally to sell. You know, Cabinet compost. There's a name, right? It fits, right? Cabinet compost. Uh, that would be another thing. I, I really don't know what else to tell you because what you have is a fine, high-quality, small-particle, organic carbon. And the best thing in the world for it is for it to bond with nitrogen and become soil. The other thing you could do with it, though, I, I, I bet it would do a really good job of growing mushrooms, So you might try your hand at doing some mushroom growing. And then you're also producing another compost product in the spent chips after the composting process. So with that, you could have cabinet compost, mushroom and chicken-produced compost, if you're interested in doing that. I mean, you sound like you have a business already. It may not be enough volume to be worth doing, but it's, you know, if you have a teenager that needs a part-time job that instead could have a part-time business, That would be an, another solution I would see for it. So, yeah, mushrooms, composting, mulching. I, if you wanted to put in, you know, uh, an outdoor uh, latrine, basically, uh, an outhouse type situation, composting toilet, fine wood chips are exactly what you need. You know, you pee, one handful goes in, you poo, two or three or four, depending on how much go in, and and then you end up with another compost product. Uh, I don't really have anything else. If anybody's got any ideas, please post them in the comments for today's episode. And, you know, give it a day or two and come on by and uh, check the comments and see if anybody's come up with some ideas I haven't. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. This is Travis from Kentucky, and I have a question about affiliate marketing. Details. I am in search of a side hustle. My day job is a factory worker, and I don't really have a unique skill set to pursue as a side hustle. I consider it a service-type job like a handyman, but my work schedule 
is a rotating mix of day and night shifts that vary weekly and often has short notice forced overtime. I also have young children, so my days off are spent at home with them. For those reasons, ideally, I would like to find online work. I know the golden age of affiliate marketing has long passed, but is there still enough opportunity to pursue it as a worthwhile and eventually profitable side hustle? Thanks for everything you do, Jack. Bye. Well, that's uh, it depends like so many things that we talk about here. Um, let's talk about what all successful affiliate marketers have in common. In one way or another, they're branding themselves. And then they're using that brand to sell on behalf of somebody they're acting as an affiliate for. We do very well with Amazon and the reviews that we post at tspaz.com. But let's be honest. If all I did was put up a little site called tspaz.com and post all my plucky reviews on there, I probably wouldn't make enough money to make it worth doing. If you, if you think about it, like from natural search of people that don't know who Jack Spierko is... How many people do you think end up on one of my reviews and go, gee, I'm going to buy this thing for cleaning cast iron pans? A couple, I'm sure, but not enough probably to get up every day and do a review. Does that mean doing reviews is not a good way to make money? No, it means that you have to think about the way you do that. So this is a good lesson here using my own platform. Why do people tend to buy the items that I recommend through TSPAS? Well, they do it because they have an affinity. So affiliate marketers capitalize on affinity. Okay, They have an affinity for TSP. So they like me. Even some of them that don't like me still sort of like me because he's a jerk, but he's my jerk, so I like him. Uh, then on top of it, I've spent 10 years building one main thing into the brand that is Jack Spirico and the Survival Podcast, Integrity. That is my brand. My brand, my one brand word is integrity. You might hate me. You might think I'm a jerk and not in the funny way people say it. You might really think I'm the biggest jerk on planet Earth. You're a climate change denier or whatever, and you're Satan's spawn. But there's no one that can say Jack Spirico lies. Jack Spirico misleads people intentionally. I mean, they disagree with what I say, but I don't think anybody with any common sense would say that. So when I say this is the best battery pack for your cell phone that I have found, people say, well, I might not even agree with him, but I know it's a good one, so I'm going to check it out, see if it works for me. Or if I say this fertilizer is a great fertilizer for your plants, and here's why. Not only do you trust the integrity, not only do you trust the relationship, but when I explain it, and you know my background, you know when, when, when Jack's saying this about the fungi and the bacterium and how it interacts with the soil, even if I don't completely understand it, I know him and his work well enough to know that he does. And that makes affiliate marketing work. Does that mean the only way you're going to be able to be a successful affiliate marketer is build a highly successful podcast? No, that is one way to do it. If you build a blog and you lead with building the blog around a subject or idea or what have you, and you build a loyal audience, then you can sell to that market. And you may sell to that market through a blog post, or you may sell it to it through it by building email lists and, and doing direct emails on products, services, and affiliate stuff. 
The thing here is, if you go down this road, you're going to learn to build websites. You're going to learn about search engine optimization. You're going to learn to market online. You're going to learn to set up email capture systems, right? That's if you're going to go down and learn all those things, you'll find some way to success. And the skills that you'll learn are invaluable. You might work for two years and not make any real money. I still remember the first time I made any money online. It was in the 90s, and I got my first check, and I was doing affiliate marketing for telecommunication services. And I had sold like a Dish Network dish, and that made me like 50 bucks, and I had sold some long distance. It was making me like, each customer was making like 50 cents for me a, a, a month, you know, and I, but I had kind of a, and I got a check, and it was for $63, my first check. And I was making 100 grand a year plus at my job. And I went running to my wife. Well, we got, we got, we had a check. And she thought it was crazy. It's like 63 bucks, you idiot. You know, that's, that's not going to pay for dinner when we go out tonight. You know, like, and, but I was so excited because I realized it was something that I made happen. What I didn't fully understand yet, though, was the, the, the concept that we talk about today with digital sharecropping. Affiliate marketing is a form of digital sharecropping. Uh, Amazon is probably one of the best places you can be an affiliate for right now, not because they pay well. They pay low. But because you can sell almost anything humans buy, you can be very creative with how you market. You can do a review-style site. Like this is a comparative review site. You can do something that's very themed. Whatever you want, you can make work for yourself and match something up to your audience. Then there's other affiliate programs that are more specialized, and if they're in a digital product of some kind, uh, let's say an educational product, a how-to product, a group of those, you can look at sites like Commission Junction uh, or any of the other affiliate networks and find all different types of things you use. Some of them pay, you know, on some of the digital products, 50%. So if you're selling a $1,000 product that pays 50% commission, and why would somebody do that? Because they get business they wouldn't normally get, and there's a digital product, so... It's like printing money. It's like software. Then you can make a lot of money off a few sales if you can get them. And then the product has to also be reliable enough that the people that buy from you aren't going to hate you for the rest of your life. That's another reason I like Amazon. I have the ability to sell products that I use and say, hey, I use this. It works. You should use it too. And I know Again, even if the product doesn't work for you, you're going to print a return label, slap it on a box, and Amazon's going to give you your money back. So you've got to be careful when you're dealing with affiliates. But no matter who you're dealing with, the affiliate, the, the affiliate company can change the rules. We got a big pay cut last winter with Amazon. A big pay cut. Most products were paying out at 8% for people that sold enough to hit the top tier. They had a tiered system. Everybody started at like 3.5% or something like that. And the more you sold, the more items you sold, the more you got. And once you went over something like 2,600 items a month, you maxed out the payment plan at 8%. We were hitting it every month. The average commission on items now is between 4 and 4.5%. And it's the same. There's no more tiered system. They cut it and they made everybody equal. Well, for people that weren't making a lot of money, it had no effect on them at all. For people that were doing very well, it hurt us. Since it's adjunctive income, it didn't hurt us that bad. Since we sell a wide variety of product and we weren't all in one spot selling very specialized product that were all high commission and all got cut down, it didn't hurt us as much as some. So I guess my advice there then is 
Yeah, you can make money with affiliate marketing, but you're much better off developing a web presence of some kind and making money by selling something of your own and seeing any of these other adjunctive cooperative deals as, as, as exactly that, adjunctive, instead of something you're going to rely on. Because it really sucks when somebody changes the rules. Way back in the day, when I started getting good at all this, Google had a pro they still do, called AdSense. That's how they pay creators on, on YouTube with it. And, you know, I had figured out some really cool niches like heavy construction equipment. I figured out people were paying five, six bucks a click for, you know, people searching for excavators and bobcats and stuff because it's a high dollar market. So I built a little bitty website about heavy construction equipment. It took me all of three days. Optimized it, started buying cheap traffic to it, got some links to it so it got some organic SEO, and all of a sudden this little site was making me a hundred bucks a week. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot, but here's the deal. I just made that little site in a few days. I put the stuff, turned up the stuff that made that hundred bucks come out, and I walked away from it. It was a little hundred dollar money machine. And I went, whoa, that's pretty cool. I'm going to go find another one and do this again. So I started building all these little arbitrage sites, basically. And I was making thousands of dollars a month. And next thing I know, it was half, and then it was half again, it was half again, and Google just kept changing the rules. And so all of that, and at that time, that was my real online income. And I was, that was what I was building toward getting out of working for other people, was that thing. And they just took it away because they could. So when they started demonetizing stuff on YouTube and everybody was losing their minds, I'm like, I guess if you're a student of history, you're not surprised when the same thing happens again. And when somebody has that much power, in time they're going to change the rules. So I think that when you're, when you're, if you're going to get involved with online marketing, you should worry about no matter what you sell or who you sell for, You need to build the brand around you or your thing or what it is. If you just go out and put up another site where people can go and learn about toasters, and I can buy that toaster from Cuisinart anywhere, why would I buy it from you? But if I trust you and I need a toaster and you tell me to get this one, that's a totally different thing. See, what people have forgotten, they just don't seem to have in their head, is that the Internet didn't change a damn thing about the way people make decisions. It just enabled them to reach more people and find out their opinion. My opinion matters because you know me. Another person's opinion, you just see in a random review, matters because at least they're another person, or at least you think they are. But the more affinity you have with the recommendation, then the more likely you are to take it. So that's the advice that I would give you on coming at is, is this worth doing? Absolutely. Just make sure you're doing it from a defined standpoint of you're building something that's about you, not about selling, you know, ebooks on how to win at poker. And you could probably make money selling ebooks about how to win at poker. But you better have something that is the mothership that when the person that you're relying on changes the rules, you go get somebody else and plug them in. With that, let's take another one. I think we got one more. Hi Jack, this is Cameron from Middle Tennessee. My question is, is how would you stop or preparedness a company vehicle. I have a 2015 F-150 regular cab long bed pickup that is owned by the company I work for. I drive it back and forth to work and for a little bit of work, a little bit of business around work. There's not a lot of room. They won't let me put a toolbox in the back, but I'd like to have some stuff in there to be prepared. So can you give some recommendations on uh, what to stock, maybe where would be a good place to store it, 
uh, if you do that, that'd be great. Thanks. I kind of I find it odd that they won't let you put a toolbox in it. And I'm wondering, are you hauling stuff or something like that? Because let's say you're not hauling stuff. Um, it may be that they get their trucks on like a, a fleet lease thing, and they don't want holes in them when they go back. Uh, and they have a regular turnaround. And that, that would be the, the number one reason I would think that something like this would be the case. Uh, so with that, what you might check into is would they be okay if you laid down a nice big old thick rubber liner and did an in-box toolbox where it sits down inside the box instead of up on the rails where it really can't even be seen. Does that mean that someone might just steal the whole daggone toolbox out of it because you can't bolt it down to the bed like you're supposed to? Sure. Is it likely? Probably not. Probably not. I mean, unless you have a big sign on it that says, hey, my toolbox isn't bolted down. You know, if somebody's going to break in a toolbox, they're going to break in a toolbox. I mean, they, they, like toolbox are the, one of the number one things to get broken into. So um, the, I, I, that would be one option that I would have for you. Another option that I would have for you would be to get yourself a couple Rubbermaid tubs and just take the couple extra moments when you park the truck anywhere where it might be at risk to grab those two tubs and throw one on each seat in the, in the front of the truck. And now you've given yourself that storage space and the, the items are still secure. Of course, your number one thing for preparedness, you know, day to day away from home is really your bug out bag anyway. So make sure you've done a really good job with your bug out bag. If you were on the air live with me, I would also be asking you, is this company truck that you take home your primary transportation? Do you basically not have a personal vehicle because of this work perk? If you do, it's a bigger issue. I mean, if you, if you don't, it's a bigger issue. If you do have a personal vehicle, then your, your, your vehicle that's truly equipped for, you know, bugging out long distance if you have to or something like that should be your own vehicle anyway, not your work vehicle. Um, but I would, I would take that approach of just figuring out how, how I can improve the storage because I can't really tell you, hey, you know, here's how to make stuff that you need room for fit when you don't have the room for it. Um, But I would, I would again, I would always stick to the basics, though, of, you know, you should have a vehicle emergency kit, and your work should be honestly providing that to you because it's their vehicle. So, you know, I would still, and if they didn't provide it for you, I would have a plug kit. I would have an air compressor, you know, small portable air compressor and things like that. Uh, I would make sure that all the stuff there needed to change a tire, et cetera, was there. Uh, and I wouldn't put too much work into the damn thing. But to me, you know, I'm not sitting on the side of the road with a flat tire. It's too quick and easy to fix 90% of the time. So I'm going to make sure that I have that available to me. Again, a well-stocked bug-out uh, bag. This is one of those ones, if you if you get back to me and maybe explain, like if I'm not understanding the question or the options I've given you don't work at all or something like that, maybe we can do some follow-up. And if we get more information, maybe we can do some audience ideas. If anybody else is out there that has this kind of a problem, you have a work vehicle, it doesn't really have any space for prepper stuff, and you you, you know you try to work around it, what, what do you do in that situation? With that, we have absolutely come to the end of another episode of the Survival Podcast. I appreciate you guys taking your Thursday and spending it with me. Uh, if you want to make a call for a show like this, again, 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK. T-H-I-N-K. Hey, guys, if you like the stuff we do, 
and you want to like a look into the back end of my life, check out our Instagram. It's actually really cool. And we're finding people are really interactive on Instagram. I, I didn't get it all these years. I just didn't. Um, you know, I put a video on my my YouTube channel, and I have 36,000 subscribers. And I get, like, over a couple of days, I get, like, seven, 800 views. I put a video up on Instagram. We have, like, less than 3,000 followers. And in a day, I have 500 views. It's pretty cool. So check it out. We're doing the laws of life. Again, we're on Instagram at It's a Jack Life. It's a Jack Life. Dorothy's running the channel. You might occasionally see my granddaughter on there, too, or something. Uh, but it's a, it's a pretty cool look into the real world that is a Spirico household. Uh, we talked about affiliate marketing today. You know, I do sell product on affiliate uh, level with Amazon.com, and you can trust my product uh, recommendations. Because, again, if it's on there, I own it, uh, I buy it, I will buy it again. Uh, I have a product for you today that is really an awesome, awesome product that belongs in everybody's kitchen. It's uh, made by Frontier Organic, and it's lemon pepper. And, and lemon pepper is pretty much lemon zest and pepper. You can make your own if you want to. Um, I find it a bit tedious, so I'm more than happy to buy it. Uh, I also believe whenever I buy spices, herbs, and seasonings, I buy in bulk. I generally buy by the pound. Uh, I take and I put it in small uh, little half pint jars, put the canning lids on it, and I can and I, I you know air can them basically, dry can them, and that way uh, I pay less per ounce, a lot less. Some of the stuff I buy, I pay less for a pound than you'll pay for two ounces at the supermarket. Seriously. Um, so it's definitely worth doing. I also don't 100% do organic when it comes to this stuff. I try to wherever I can, wherever it makes sense. Uh, but with anything that uses a zest of citrus, which is the outer part of the peeling, the with the part without the white on it. So in a lemon, you got the yellow part of the peel, but not the white underneath, not the pith. Orange, you got the orange part. A lime, you got the green part. Anything that uses a zest from the citrus industry, I only use organic because the citrus industry is one of the heaviest users of pesticides there is, and they're not that concerned about the peel, right? So I just don't think that's a good idea. In the review that I have for you today on the Frontier Organic Lemon Pepper, um, I give you my lemon pepper herb chicken. I know everybody has lemon chicken. It's not lemon chicken, okay? It's lemon pepper herb chicken. If you follow this recipe, you will make the best ever herb chicken product you've ever made in your life. It will be juicy. It will be amazing. You will feed it to people and they go, how the hell did you do this? Tell them where you found out. Let them know. Maybe they'll check out what I do here. Um, but this recipe is phenomenal. Uh, again, you can check out the products made by Frontier Organic. Uh, it is a just an exceptional product. You get a pound of it for 18 bucks. I think a pound of it should last you several years. So again, if you have a, a vacuum sealer of any kind, I figure most of you do, most of them come with an attachment for doing dry canning with, with ball jars. Just put them in the small ball jars, and that stuff will last for damn near ever. I, I have some of this. I'm, I haven't bought this in a year and a half. I was looking at my repeat orders today, and I still have a jar of it in, in the, the cabinet, even though I use it quite frequently. Uh, on, the, on the floor, I have a box I haven't opened up and done it with yet. I Three pounds of whole coriander seed. Because it was cheaper than buying a pound. I know that sounds retarded, but it was. So that's, that's what I do with my herbs, and that's what I advise you guys to do, too. Anyway, that brings us uh, up to the song of the day. And yesterday we had Taxi uh, by Harry Chapin. And I told you that there, there was a sequel to the song, Taxi, called Sequel. And you'd hear it sometime on the show. 
uh, you're here today. So basically it's the same music, and it's evolving the story 20 years later. So the last time the two people in this song met, which is based on his own self as one character and this girl that he uh, went to college with that he dated, uh, the taxi driver was still driving around in his taxi getting stoned, and uh, she was a successful actress. Well, in the narrative that he wrote, and this is actually his wife suggested that he write this second version of the song, uh, the famous actress is no longer a famous actress. It sounds like, I'd say it's about 80% in my mind, that she's actually a lady of the night. You can listen to the words yourself and see if that makes sense to you. Um, but she's happy. She's found herself. And she's not miserable. She was miserable as this famous actress. And he is no longer driving a taxi. He takes one to go find her, but it's the passenger, and he's now kind of himself. He is a famous musician. and uh, But he's not exactly happy. And the roles in the relationship have reversed. And she is the one that actually really is enjoying her life. And the thing was that there's lines in the song that say to the effect that sometimes getting everything you want isn't everything you expect, and it doesn't make you happy. And there's truth in that. And I think that's why it's important that we define what we want so well and why we want it so well. So that if we spend so much time and effort trying to get there, that when we get there, we're not disappointed with it. I find a lot of people that have that kind of success in media uh, end up being disappointed. Do what you really love, and you'll never be disappointed when you succeed at it. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. I got into town a little early, had eight hours to kill before the show. First I thought about heading up north of the bay. Then I knew where I had to go I thought about taking a limousine Or at least a fancy car But I ended up taking a taxi Cause that's how I got this far You see, ten years ago it was the front seat Driving stoned and feeling no pain Now here I am straight and sitting in the back Hitting 16 Parkside Lane The driveway was the same as I remembered And a butler came and answered the door He just shook his head when I asked for her Said she doesn't live here anymore Body offered to give me the address That they were forwarding her letters to I just took it and returned to the cabbie And said, I got one more fare for you And so we rolled back into the city Up to a five-story old brownstone I rang the bell, it had her name on the mailbox The buzzer said somebody's home
her face as she opened the door was like an old joke told by a friend. It taken ten more years, but she'd found her smile, and I watched the corner start to bend. And she said, "How are you, Harry? Haven't we played this scene before?" I said. It's so good to see you, Sue. Had to play it out just once more. Play it out just once more. She said, "I've heard you flying high on my radio." I answered, "It's not all it seems." That's when she left, and she said. It's better sometimes when we don't get to touch our dreams. That's when I asked her where was that actress. She said that was somebody else. And then I asked her why she looks so happy now. She said, I finally like myself. Last, I like myself. So we talked all through that afternoon, talking about where we'd been. We talked of the tiny difference between ending and starting to begin. We talked 'cause talking tells you things like what you really are thinking about. But sometimes you can't find what you're feeling till all the words run out. At night, I said we've gotten too damn good at leaving Sue. She said, "Harry, you're right." Don't ask me if I made love to her or which one of us started to cry. Don't ask me why she wouldn't take the money that I left. If I answered it all, I'd lie. So I thought about her as I sang that night, and of how the circle keeps rolling around, how I act as I'm facing the footlights, and how she's flying with both feet on the ground. Yes, it's a sequel to our story from the journey between heaven and hell. With half the time thinking of what might have been, and half thinking just as well. I guess, oh. 